0: I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotchy, scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down, down into my belly.
2: Mm-mm-mm. mess with me, I'm one crazy moofoo.
3: This brand is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne, and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and special seasonal gift day, but also let's not forget large orders for party favors by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansoapery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email Littlebeansopery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends ya.
1: Hello everybody, this is Jumpin' Jim Brunzel, and if I was you, I'd listen to Crazy Train Radio.
2: Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in a podcast world. Crock Jonathan Steele. Boy do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Now I know everything we hear on the internet is true, but <laughs> we actually spoke to this guest years ago when he and he can probably correct us with it, when he won an award. Out at the Iowa Hall of Fame. I'm guessing 2013, 2014, somewhere in that period. But I'll give him another formal introduction. He was a state champion a high jumper in high school as well as a football player. Went on to some other school called University of Minnesota where he continued to high jump and football and had a tryout with the Washington Redskins as a tight end because he was a wide receiver. However, Wyatt University of Minnesota he was teammates with a name I think most wrestling fans would know being the Gagneys, being mr. Greg Gagne. this guy has done so much over his 25 year career we were actually shooting the shit and telling stories or I wasn't I was listening to dr. Mike and Jim swap stories but this guest jumping Jim Brunzel Jim how you doing
1: I'm doing good. Cripes, you got it down pretty good there, Jonathan. <laughs> I mean that—that's a condensed story of my life right there. Thank you and good night, folks. <laughs> Let's Thank go you. Grab a beer. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: But you know, it's funny. It there's just so much that's going on, like you said. But first and foremost, I'm curious to know because, especially when you were active in the ring, all the bumps, all the bruises. I think I heard. Somewhere around 5,000 matches, give or take, over your career. How are you feeling?
1: Well, I'm about to have my 10th surgery. Uh, I've had both knees. I've had one hip, and I've had uh, my left shoulder. And my right shoulder, I was scheduled to have done in November 18th. And when I went in for my pre-op physical, they detected that when they gave me the EKG, I had a little bit of atrial flutter. So they sent me to a cardiologist, and they put me on blood thinners and and, um, an antiarrhythmic. So consequently, I I couldn't do (laughs) my surgery. And then my shoulder was so painful, they they had to give me two shots of cortisone in the shoulder. And you can't have surgery uh, for three months after the cortisone's been in your system because it prevents healing. So (laughs) it's been a real uh, screwy last couple of months. And now uh, um, they want me to do an echocardiogram for my heart. And then I've always had some real bad um, varicose veins in my left leg because that's uh, my plant foot for jumping all through high school and college. And then my drop kicks, you know, I, I, and what happened was I, I, I have uh, about uh, two pounds of night crawlers from my back of my knee down to my ankle, down the side of my calf. And uh, they're a little concerned about some potential blood clotting. And if I should nick them that I, I might bleed profusely. So next week, I'm going to have a um, picture of it. Um, and they're going to Determine what they're going to do. So it's really been a screwy last month for me. You know, it always can be worse, but uh, I was really hoping to get this shoulder taken care of because it—it uh, it just you know it—and it, I've had six operations on my knees, and with both of them being replaced, but they're still shot. So I think I think this cold weather in Minneapolis uh, doesn't help. From you know in St. Paul and and. Um, Hopefully, in, in a couple of weeks we're going down to Florida, and uh, we're staying. Matter of fact, in Gene Okerlund's old, uh, uh, not old, beautiful condo on uh, Siesta Key in Sarasota. Uh, he doesn't own it anymore. I think his wife sold it after he passed away. But uh, we wound up getting that for a couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, it's it. You know, I, I, you never realize when you're doing, you know, the wrestling gig and you know wrestling as much as you did, and taking the bumps, and you just kept going. And then uh, afterwards, you know, um, those areas that take a lot of abuse, there's a lot of calcium that's formed in those areas as form of protection. And then they they goof up the range of motion also, they goof up (laughs) the uh, ligaments and the cartilage, and then, you know, the doctor has to go in there and do what he can. So You know, I've been fortunate, but at the same time, it's, uh, you know, it always could be worse, but, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, it's getting a little hard to get around, but uh, I do the best I can. I I still work out, but I can't lift anything now. I I just, you know, just go through the motions. Hopefully I get, uh, get a good sweat, but I still take my supplements, uh, which I've been doing for 55 years. And um, Like my doctor said, uh, he said, Jim, he says, one thing I know for sure. And I said, what's that? And he says, you have the most expensive urine in Badness Heights, Minnesota.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And they, well, two things with that. First, they say in wrestling's fake. I say that with a snicker, but you know, all you guys had the bumps and bruises from the miles, but I was going to blame all that, that rough month or so you've been having. I'm going to blame that on the iron cheek and that loaded boot from a, the uh, Crockett territory.
1: You know what? I, and I mentioned this in my book, Matt lands up, you know, George Scott uh, was the booker there and, and they used to work us continually, you know, he well, first day I get down there. He says, Jim, don't ask for time off because we work seven days a week. And sometimes we work twice on Saturday and twice on Sunday. So, Eventually, I wound up winning this mid-Atlantic heavyweight championship from Ken Patera in Richmond, Virginia. So they wanted to do a little angle between Kazro, the Iron Sheik, and, and myself. So on TV, we wound up doing this deal where he had the loaded boot. Boom. He hit, kicks me in the throat and beats me. One, two, three, takes, takes the belt. So about two weeks later, I have a return match with him on TV I wind up putting a sleeper hold on him and he goes down and I take his boot off. So I said, I'm, I'm going to win my title back and I'm going to do it with his boot on. So they came back with the match in Roanoke, Virginia, and it was three o'clock on, a, uh, I believe it was a Saturday afternoon. And I think at eight o'clock, we had another match in Charlotte, which was about 110 miles away. So I'm in the locker room, and and Sandy Scott was the agent for George. And he came up to me and he said, um, did George give you the finish? And I said, no. And he he says, well, George wants you to do a Broadway 60-minute match, time limit, you know, a draw. I said, what? He says, yeah, we want you to do a draw. I said, are you crazy? I said, that's the worst finish I've ever heard in my life. Here, I've got a gimmick from the Iron Sheik that he used to beat me illegally. Now, I have it on my foot, and I can't beat him scientifically or with his gimmick in one hour. I said, you might as well dig a hole right in the middle of that ring in Richmond, Virginia, and bury me, because that'll kill me. So we did the hour uh, draw, uh, draw, and I and. I think uh, probably two or three weeks later, um, George wound up firing me because I uh, vehemently uh, you know, thought his booking was horrible, which it was. Worst worst finish I've ever heard in wrestling. He's having a gimmick, you know, and he can't beat the heel. Yeah, well, at that point of
2: your career, and I'll let Dr. Mike jump back in here, but – you say it's the worst finish I ever heard of. You know, you have that whole conversation you do the match anyway. But do you feel at that point in your career that you were able to speak up and say, hey, I like this. I like that. You know, what I mean, to be able to stand up for yourself and have that conversation.
1: Well, I think I had a, a pretty good, uh, you know, building in the business to know <laughs> what I thought was good for the business and good for me at the same time. Because if you don't protect yourself, nobody will. So you have to, you know, take what uh, the promoter says and the booker says, and then you have to, you know, think about it. And usually, you know, most bookers are, you know, they're interested in building, you know, stories and making money over a period of time. Well, in North Carolina, I mean, they had Rick Steamboat and Ric Flair. And they just set the damn thing on fire. And then a couple years before I got there, they had Roddy Piper too. So that territory was incredible. And they had Blackjack Mulligan, and they had uh, uh, Jimmy Snuka. And it, it was just, you know, it was really good. And and the only thing good about I, I like Charlotte because of the weather. But the one thing that was good about it was the fact that you'd drive, you know, you might have a a match that was 140 miles away. So you'd be back in a couple hours so you can spend the night at home. You know, where in New York. You were gone. You know, they gave you a a pack of tickets like that. You were booked 27 days a month and you were in a different town every single night. So.
2: Well, Dr. Mike Lano is with us. Uh, I know he's, got so many stories. And we were talking about photos and all before we started. Dr. Mike, what do you got?
0: Well, first, I want to say happy holidays to you guys. And the Jim is one of those guys I've always had tremendous respect because that was my period 60s, 70s, 80s, shooting for the magazines and all of that. And he's like one of those ethical guys I put up there with Bruno, Brett, most of the time, Steamboat. And I can't think of all. You know, maybe a, a couple of these promoters, like the original Tunney in Toronto, Sam Munchnick, Gus Karras, who I'll ask him about. Um, <laughs> very quickly about Cosgrove. I was yes. there in McGurk's territory, and, and, and you know, like you know, Cosgrove's amateur background was pretty incredible in wrestling. Sure. He had all those stats, and I think Leroy McGurk, who had that territory mid south before it was just called mid southern until bill Watts changed the name and aggressively took it over from leroy but cause uh, with leroy and Vern working together obviously Vern broke him in for pro and all of that stuff and then he first worked as a pro gentle baby face for leroy but i was there when his iron chic or his chic uh, of Araby gimmick was formulating in dallas for fritz and uh, uh, and, and you know some other places too uh, well before mid-atlantic and try wf or uh, i guess it was wwf by then and then later like 10 years ago from the howard stern show namely this guy that works for stern shuley is an on-air hired me to be cosrow's bodyguard i don't know if you know that cosrow started appearing on shock radio shows like opie and anthony and howard stern but he had and i also babysat him at like just conventions like they have these uh, retired tv and movie conventions around the country and we'll get like a whole group of wrestlers and i'm sitting there with greg valentine nikolai volkoff albano who was acting up and like one or two others and this was at the height of him coswell being on stern and opie and anthony he had some heat with brian blair so he yeah. and he would like verbalized the same shtick everywhere like i yeah. I, I, I i know Khosra was like out of his mind by then but he was he just stands up and there's like all the famous cast from happy days and and some other stuff and marjo gortner and carol kane the famous actress comic actress all these famous people there and cause stands up and just starts screaming I'm going to make, you know, so-and-so humble and F him from behind. He tried to go behind me and shoot on me. And and I'm just going, oh man, I don't know when he lost it, but it was very hard for me because seeing him get up and, and them poking fun at him, I go, these people don't know. This guy has all the cred in the world. And yeah, you know, since his daughter died and all this stuff, maybe he's had some traumatic issues and stuff, but... It's like people laugh at him, and it really kind of broke my heart. So on to other stuff. I want to show you, I was trying to dig up shots of Jim and Greg teaming up, but even my shots, I only went through Kansas City. So first I want to ask, I know Jonathan might have asked you, who broke you in and when? Because I seem to recall you working for Geigel in Kansas City before you came into the AWA. Am I wrong on that? When you were teamed with Al Hayes.
1: Well, no. When I first started, I started in 72, and it f- with Vern and Billy Robinson, Billy Robinson did most of the breaking in. It was Ken Patera. It was Kazro Vaziri. It was Bob Bruggers, who was a football player. It was myself, Greg Gagne, and Rick Flair. So we went through this camp, and then uh, a couple of us stayed a little bit in the AWA, and then Vern sent me down to Kansas City, worked for Geigel and O'Connor. And then Flair went to North Carolina. And I believe Patera went to Texas. And I don't know, Cosgrove, I can't remember. He went to Oklahoma. And then Greg stayed. And then Bruggers went to North Carolina and then was involved in that plane crash. Right. Flair was in and then he he screwed his back up and never worked again. But um, when I went down to Kansas City, uh, they put Gus Karras, who... Was probably the oldest living promoter of that time. I he was had to be in his early 80s when I was down there. And he wanted Mike George, who was a local boy from St. Joe, to tag up. So he and I tagged up. And we worked with Roger Kirby and Al Hayes, who were the central State okay.
0: There, there we go. Ten- Roger Rip Kirby. Yeah,
1: yeah, Kirby, who just passed away, I think a year ago or something or two years ago. But so, and there was another place, Kansas City, where you you wrestled twice every night. You'd have an opener and then you'd have a tag team match, and then you might have a Battle Royal or you know, whatever it was, but you'd work, (laughs) you know, seven days a week. And it was, and I remember they had a guy named Moody, he was the referee. I can't think of his first name. But he was a ball-headed guy and he was sort of a redneck son of a guy and he'd come into the locker room and he had these little uh vanilla envelopes with your money in them it was cash and he'd throw them at us you know as <laughs> we sat there the... uh... okay so uh you get this little envelope and i'd open it up and there was 27 dollars and two quarters $27.50, that's what I got for the night before, and I wrestled twice. So this went on for a little bit, and I thought, "Geez, I'm only making, you know, I'm making, I'm making $145 or $150 a week, and I'm wrestling 14 times,
0: you know. Are you sure you weren't working for Nick Gulas?
1: No, I never worked for him, thank God.
0: Uh, the, but, he was like the lowest payday guy. Oh,
1: him. yeah, I heard that too. Whoa. But so I called Vernon. I said, Vernon, I says, I don't know how much longer I can stay here. I said, my apartment's only 145 bucks a month. It was a one bedroom efficiency. I said, but I, I'm just not making any money. So he called Geigel and bitched the Geigel So then Geigel calls me into the office and he says, you're young. You don't know that you don't bitch about, you know, a, a different territory. And I said, well, I says, Bob, I says, I was making $800 a week up in Minneapolis. I said, you know, 145 is quite a comparison, but he did make me more money. And and I was fortunate because I got to be around Harley race and I got to be around the Briscoes and the funks. And I learned a lot just by watching them in the ring, you know, and Jack Briscoe was a great, great worker. And so were the funks and and they come through there and, and, um, you know, it, it was a learning experience for me. So then when I did come back to Minnesota, they what they did, this was in 74, they sent me right from Kansas City to Tokyo and I was in Japan for five weeks by myself. I didn't know anybody there. And I had a hell of a time. I worked for BABA and um, it was a good experience, but I was glad to get home. <laughs> Yeah, so you, you guys, work for
0: remember- the IWE was the AWA affiliate. That was actually older than Baba's All Japan or Inoki's New Japan. They didn't form until number right. seventy-two. So typically, Vern would send you know Paul and Maurice and uh, Ventura and, 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 and etc. to the IWE, and that was where we all first got note of Andre in sixty-nine because he was or seventy. He was on a tour for that group in Japan with the best coaches in the world, Billy Robinson and uh, uh, Carl Gotch. I forgot you were in that first Vern-Billy camp because then he had the famous second camp. But the first one was a a huge deal. So I was talking about photos, and Jonathan's never even seen this, but this was at uh, a Hall of Fame thing. These are all, you know, world champion, total legends. A a collegiate guy, Cowboy Dick Hutton or Dick Hutton here. Oh, yeah. Hard-boiled Haggerty, who was a mainstay in the 60s for Vern. yeah, became a famous movie actor, Paint Your Wagon, about yeah, sure. like, movie credits. Vern and Lou Thez. You know, it's like hooker shooters row. And I've got some other ones with yep. Stu Hard and Larry Simon, Great Malenko with Thez and Danny sure. Hodge uh, that I'll throw out there. And, and here's, here's one of my blackmail photos. Because if you remember when Ole Anderson's Georgia Championship Wrestling went down... It was because Jack and Jerry and uh, Jim Barnett sided with Vince. And Oli hated anything and everything to do with WWF. So when we moved Cauliflower Alley in 1999 from L.A. to Vegas that first time in 2000, only because I nagged particularly Oli to pose with Pat Patterson, who was Vince's right-hand guy. Oh, sure. Yeah, so there... And Oli looks like he's about to puke, and he ran away the minute I was done with that. And the funny thing was, too, you'll appreciate this: it was the one and only time Johnny Powers came to any reunion, and he huh. teamed. The crazy thing was, he uh, he came in f- for us in LA in '74, and um, I think that was the first time Pat Patterson had been fired by a Shire. The first time, so they were to drop the titles, which was Johnny Powers, Ohio promotion with pedro martinez part pedro martinez the nwf tag titles to inoki and sakaguchi but they never teamed before It was like a phantom title thing but they never even they were never champs or anything but they come in and mike labelle the big liar my big boss you know (laughs) advertises them as the uh, world international champions johnny powers and pat patterson so they drop the straps to inoki and sakaguchi it's taped they show it in japan at this reunion, and so, and then actually, Pat teamed up with him uh, on a later couple of New Japan tours. So, at that Cauliflower Alley in two thousand, I dragged Powers and Pat to pose together, holding my shots of them from seventy four, and we take the shots. And after that, Pat goes, "Who the fuck is that guy?" He couldn't even remember <laughs> that he teamed with it, with Pat or with Powers. And Pat uh, Powers had a history, I think the first territory ever worked, bleach blonde hair, was for Vern in the AWA, early 60s.
1: Probably, yeah.
0: I oh, know, It is.
1: Pat was the character. I I, I had, um, I remember uh, we went down to Brian Blair's wedding in Tampa and um, <laughs> we had spent the night with uh, Pat Patterson and his partner, Louie. Louis. So, and it was about 85 degrees, so they had a spare bedroom and they had a big water bed in there. So my wife and I went, you know, we went to the the, the wedding and the reception. We came back and we we're going to go to bed. And that Pat Patterson had turned the heat up in the water bed to 100 degrees. So the air conditioning was on at about 78. I'm laying in this hot water bed and I'm just sweating like a son of a gun. I thought, what in the hell is going on? So I got up, and I turned the air conditioning. I figured that this was a prank done by Patterson. So I turned the air conditioning down to 62. And in the morning when they get up, I swear to God, you could see your breath in there. And Louie <laughs> says, oh, my God. He says, I swear you could hang meat." In the kitchen, you know, because it was so damn cold. But that was a rib that Patterson played on it. you know, turning the damn heat up on the water waterbed, probably 90 degrees. It was unbearable. So <laughs> well, one last thing.
0: Louis Dandero was like the financial whiz. We knew him from San Francisco with Pat. And um, well, here's just Pat was, uh, I'm glad I pulled my Pat Patterson's file. I was going to ask you, I'm pretty sure Lanza and... Uh, strongbow chief were your agents but here's pat with uh tony guria they tony, were actually Shire yeah. tag champs in 75 so this is them obviously probably about 1990 something and then pat with kenji shibuya who i don't know if you knew him he was a total legend
1: i uh, i heard of him but i don't believe i met him but he uh, broke
0: in masa saito baba had oh. was punishing mr saito masa saito who you know yes and saito, LA and San Francisco in like 1969 as punishment. I don't know what the heck happened, but Kenji Shibuya, who was Hawaiian born, he wasn't true Japanese, even though he toured for Baba in all Japan. He was the guy who, you know, was told to take Saito in and, you know, break him into the US style of entertainment wrestling as opposed to the more athletic Japanese style and watch him. And they were a team, uh, and they were the first guys to hold uh titles in two major territories at the exact same time shire's so-called world nwa tag titles and NLA la or america's tag titles at the same time headlining both territories at once which i don't think really ever happened uh no
1: anywhere
0: you yeah know, you, i don't you i don't
1: remember
0: that but... yeah unless you were a touring attraction like dusty you could go to detroit for the chic or you know headline in sure. florida and vince senior but that was something special jonathan i'm sorry went on there
2: no it's okay but speaking of dusty and i can't remember where i heard this story my boy is uh you know what? jim may have even been the one to tell me this years ago but there was a story from the awa dick murdoch dusty rose and one ray stevens in a motorbike does that sound
1: familiar to you? Well, I I remember the three of them carrying on, you know, uh, all week long, and I do remember them. They had a they had a mule named Jeb, and they they drove the damn mule into this bar, this this, uh, it wasn't a honky tonk bar, but and they, they drove it in about twelve o'clock, and they, you know nobody was expecting. And here comes Dusty and Dick with this damn mule in the middle of the bar, and he got kicked out, but. Uh, those guys were constantly getting in trouble. I mean, Murdoch and, and Rhodes, they were incredible. They were called the Texas Tornadoes, I think, in Minneapolis. But um, uh, they, were, they were really characters. And I tell you that Dick Murdoch was one of the great workers in the business. He was such a natural. Jesus, God, he was so good. Um, I watched him and I thought, man. And you know, he never trained and he drank he drank a case of beer a night. And he had a big old billy on him. But you know, he was like 6'4 and 290. And he, he he just was a he was a hillbilly. I mean, he was a character, and and uh, I I watched him in the ring, and I remember this was towards the end of my career. We did a pay-per-view in Atlanta on TV, and it was Morocco and Murdoch and somebody else against Wahoo, myself and somebody, but Murdoch, Murdoch winds up in there with me, and all of a sudden I I I'm jumping over him and I hit the ropes, and he hits me with a great drop kick.
0: Wow!
1: Boom! And you know you're 6'5 and two ninety, so I'm down on the ground. He covers me, and I told him I says, Dicky, I'm supposed to give those to you. <laughs> he left and up where we went, you know. But wasn't well, he like Ray Stevens?
0: because uh, bachwing will tell me ray wouldn't you know just give him the finish he was yeah. a total natural never trained or anything like that similar to murdoch obviously i would think ray's a little bit up before all of his motorcycle accidents and stuff sure. plus uh him and this is before uh well no, it was ray pat and Bachwinkle, and this must have been 7172 in Honolulu, where you also worked for uh, Russ, or, uh, Ed Francis, Russ yes. Francis's head, but they, they went to Maui, and they wanted to see the Haleakala crater at 6 a.m. They rode mopeds all the way up there, naked all the way up there, and naked all the way back, plus <laughs> the same time there was a tour of the the the, you know the real well the roller derby which is like worked wrestling but on skates oh sure yeah and they they would crisscross and ann calvello was like the moolah of roller derby the (laughs) bleach blonde hair and she used to have stuff painted in it like a silhouette of john kennedy and nixon all this stuff so she was way before dennis rodman anyway ray nick and pat uh or or nick and ray get pat you know boozed up and i guess they might have put a mickey or something in his drink and they put him to bed and then they ask Calvello to get in bed with him. And then he wakes up in the morning the next day with a hangover. He shrieks. And he kept he would constantly tell the story. And Aunt Calvello used to coast coast my TV show. So she would tell her own story. But Pat would constantly say thereafter, she was the only woman I ever slept with.
1: It's <laughs> <That's> probably true. <laughs> <laughs> but since we brought
2: up Murdoch, there was actually one story, and I gotta bring this up. It was hilarious, and I heard it from Terry Funk, and it was in the <laughs> early 2000s, and you know how Terry is. Both of you guys probably knew him a lot better than I obviously would, but it was in the early 2000s. Terry was working in the Philadelphia area for an independent. It was kind of known, and we're, you know, sitting around listening to stories from Terry, and somebody brings up Murdoch, and he goes... He tells the infamous Murdoch story working for Coors Light and decides to get a paint job on his truck with a company credit card. <laughs> so that's all you got to say about <laughs> Or no, it wasn't a, a credit card. Excuse me. He would use the company credit card to visit the bars to sell Coors. But what he did was he went to the dealer, wherever their home base was for Coors and had his truck painted, washed, and all kinds of stuff that they would do for the delivery trucks. And that's what got them canned. But Terry
0: telling the story is just like... Whose promotion was this? Was it CZW? What was it? No,
2: it was uh, 3PW.
0: Was that uh, uh, Jasmine St. Clair's with Blue Meanie? Yes. She's... uh, Jim, she's a longtime porn actress. She flew me out with one of the times... (laughs) She, but she got into wrestling with that Rob Black. If you watch that Dark Side of the Ring, that that it was like a renegade copycat of ECW because this guy, Rob Black, a porn movie producer, wasn't, he was, he wanted, but was denied by Paul Heyman to promote ECW on the West Coast. So he formed his own group, hired yeah. guys, Paul would fire him. But um, Jasmine was, uh, I sent her to Mondo Guerrero and Sue Sexton, an Australian women's, you know, great worker to get some training. But anyway, yeah, she hit me. She's doing a book. Everybody's doing a book in the biz. So she's been hitting me up for photos because I actually shot her trying to wrestle with Chris Candido and Tammy Sitch and all of those folks. I don't- she actually Jim, just you- sent me a message, but that's a whole nother story. Who sent you a message? <laughs> Jasmine. Yeah. No. Oh.
2: That's a whole nother thing. Jasmine. Yeah.
0: But go ahead, Jim, can you watch today's product, because now we have lots of documentaries on the boys. We even had like a Lost Treasures, you know, Vince production where they're going out trying to retrieve stuff that somehow the boys sold or gave to Mark's. We have this dark side of the ring, which is like pretty depressing. And then we have wrestling is I don't recall in our territory days, which I miss every single day of my life. And it's not the territories now, but there's so many promotions. Every night, there's like three, four hours of wrestling by main companies. Like tonight is perhaps the best company in the U.S. AEW show. They have a show that comes on Friday nights, as Jonathan knows, right after Vince's two-hour smackdown. So are you watching any of this stuff, Jim?
1: You know, to be uh, honest with you, I can't because I... I watch it, and no matter who it is, if it's the WWE or if it's the AEW, whatever it is, it's all the same. I mean, there's no heel, there's no baby face, there's no person in the ring, there's no personality that shows any weakness. They're all tough guys, they're all heels. They do this, they do that. And I I know this is what Vince wanted to create, and it's, it's funny because – most of the people that are are working in the AEW now use the word for Vince, so they're all they're doing is projecting the same uh, wrestling in the same show with a different owner. And sure, they got you know younger guys or whatever. But I watched a guy just the other night. I think his name was Orange Cassidy.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I watched him and I thought, what in the heck were they trying to do with this guy? And they're they're putting this kid over. And uh, I, I I thought, you know, and, and I, I don't know the kid and I don't know what his background is. But to me, when I watched that, I thought, holy Jesus, what are they trying to do?
0: Well, it's exposing the business. Well, I saw him on the indie He's been on the indie Circuit on the West Coast before AEW even started. And he, you know, put his hands in his pockets and do like a measly kick and the crowd would cheer as if it was like something stiff, like a potato. Yeah. But it's not, there's no, so it's, well, we have Vince to thank for exposing the biz going back to whatever year it was, 1991, having that press conference with the Wall Street Journal, exposing the biz so we wouldn't have to pay the ringside right. doctors, that whole thing. Exactly,
1: yeah. yeah. And it's
0: been, and and I'll I'll shut up, but I'll say, very little psychology in today's product. I have to watch all of it. A lot of it I like, but it's not like the old days where, and I think the first guys to know sell were Bruiser and Crusher. And they were unique because, you know, when they somebody jammed their head into a the turnbuckle, they wouldn't sell it. And we'd never seen that before, really. They were the first like heel baby faces. They're behaving like heels with their faces. And, but... Everybody and I got this. All the times I shot in Japan, you know, many times I was going to ask you if you went to Ricky Dozan's gravesite, which is a huge mausoleum with all these sculptures and things around it. So, just have, have a picture. Edit. Did you, uh,
1: Mark? I have a picture of Steamboat and I standing in front of the um, Ricky Dozan uh, uh, bronze figure, and um, we were over there a couple times together, but. Uh, I agree with you. What what we're seeing on TV now is, you know, I don't know. It, it, I just can't watch it. I don't. You know, the guys. I, the only thing good about the whole thing is these guys are finally making a decent living. And I have no idea if they're getting their hospitalization or oh, insurance are. or if they have any. Oh, uh, yeah, they, they, they have, have been like
0: Hogan. Any, kind of you know, started. Sort <laughs> All that stuff you should have gotten. But the thing wow. was, in Japan and all of those guys like Bob and Inoki, when I would ask them, they would say those guys, particularly the Gaijin, the American foreigners had aura. Yeah, it whether it was it. Bruiser or Billy Robinson, all of those guys, Fred Blassie, you know, whether it was a crazy character or somebody athletically based like, a, you know, Briscoe's or... Uh, yep you know these guys kenny patera they have this aura and i really think that kind of aura we saw in the territory days is kind of lacking now there's too many cookie cutter guys all look the same and you know i mean harley race had it or bulldog bob brown from kc oh god body no body whatsoever you know thank god and could go for, you know, forever. Or Harley. Yeah. You know, Harley's thing was one legit one-hour broadways everywhere around the world. And, you know, who would you enjoy seeing more than Harley Race? Very few. Or Dory and Briscoe. All those classics. All this fantastic stuff from our day.
1: Wow. Uh, what well, there's a couple of things well, there. Well, there what I was, what NWA champions, no matter if it was Dory Funk, Terry Funk, Jack Briscoe, Harley Race, Ric Flair. You did a hour Broadway every night. I mean, every single night. Those guys. As I I worked with Rick, and we had done a couple, two or three Broadways, and Harley was the easiest guy to do two or three Broadways with. Uh, you know, they they paced themselves, and they would do the. Something and then they, you know, get some heat and they'd have a little comeback and they'd stop you and they get some heat. And this went on and on until the crescendo. But now I don't think there's anybody in either one of those uh, wrestling promotions that could do an hour, probably. I really don't.
0: And entertain the people every second. Well, you remember Johnny Valentine's big thing? Valentine would get like Briscoe or, you know, Dusty before he turned to. Face or something in Florida and hold a headlock on them and entertain people for like 19 minutes about letting go of the headlock. And you can't do that today. But then, you know, the, they, those guys would listen to the audience. That's something today's wrestlers don't do. They'd listen, gauge, you know. And, you know, now it's so heavily scripted since about WrestleMania 3 with the Savage oh. Steamboat thing where, you know, 93 moves, you have to memorize them in exact order whereas i think you guys had more fun and it was more entertaining for the people and the biz was tremendous in most every territory as a result
1: well i got to tell you one time the uh, wwe was working in minneapolis and hulk was there and i brought my grandsons to go see him and and it was funny because it was right before christmas and it, I got. They brought me back. Miracle that they let me in, and because uh, I'm persona non grata with Vince, so they brought really? me back. And I'm. I, oh God, yeah. Well, I sued. I, we wound up suing Vince a couple times, and and um, it worked out in our favor. And I, I, I think to this day Brian blames that, the fact that we aren't WWE Hall of Fame, but that's neither here nor. And Hulk had six or seven typewritten pages of his interview that he had to memorize. And he said, this goes on every single, every TV. You have to memorize it. And that's what Bobby Heenan told me, because Bobby only had an eighth education degree. And he says, I want everybody to read and memorize all these doggone uh, promos. And you're sticking, you know, Bobby... To me, was the greatest all-around wrestling character bar none. You know, I mean, he could do anything, and and he on a nightly basis, and and he made all the promoters so much money. Look at you know what he did for Vince. How many guys he walked out to the ring with? You know, four or five guys, and he was just he was incredible. He was doing
0: the flip over the turnbuckle way before Flair did. This was when Heenan was the lead heel oh, manager yeah. for Bruisers WWA. And in Chicago yes. and all that it's stuff. It's incredible. You don't even know this. Pepper Gomez lived down the street, like walking distance from us, and we used to, you know, go take care of him yeah. and his widow Bonnie. Right. when She died, uh, but yeah, that's it, so Heenan was so good at extemporaneous, right off the cuff stuff. But Pat and Ray and even oh, Bob yeah. would say they would all say that Heenan was a better worker than any of them. You know, and they were oh, flattering because Stevens was so great, but uh, Bobby oh, Stevens was really good was for his neck Oh, he was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. He used to call himself. Yeah. He I, said to I before, just said, go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, go ahead. Finish your thought.
0: I was just going to say uh, he didn't used to call himself when he used to pick up the robes for the boys in uh, Indiana and Chicago. A male rat. This was before he got broken in and smartened up and everything. Hmm. A male rat, <laughs> because he said he would have paid, you know, to do what he was getting paid for later on, which was just so amazing. Or if you see him in Atlanta working for Oli when it was cold in Minneapolis, the stuff he would do with Carl Cox and
1: hmm.
0: some of the other guys. Heenan was the greatest. I agree.
1: He It was funny because you know he, Bobby used to drink an awful lot, and and I never saw him really to the point where he fell down, drunk, but he, you know, on a, say for instance, on a Friday night in Denver, you know, he closed the bars and he, you know, he loved vodka. And then we had to fly home Saturday morning and we go to TV at 9.30 at at WTCN and then do uh, a tape show, interviews and everything. And then we fly out at five o'clock, to either do Milwaukee or Chicago. Uh, or Green Bay. So it was funny because Vern and Wally would sit at the desk before the TV and they had everything laid out on who was going to do the interviews for what town. And Bobby leaned over Vern and um, Wally Carbo and Ver- and Vern looked up at him and he says, he didn't. He says, God damn it. He says, you've been drinking. And he says, you can't smell vodka. He walked away. <laughs> you can't smell vodka and you, he walked away he, he was uh, we had so much fun together and I, I uh, went to his funeral and I was so disappointed because there wasn't anybody from the WWF there, there was that were at his funeral and I was very very disappointed and uh, same thing with Gene Okerlund there was about 20 people at his funeral and apparently, uh, Vern or Vern uh, Vince had called um, Cindy Heenan and said, "Don't worry, we'll take care of everything." And Cindy says, "That's okay, Vince. You've done enough." So I guess that uh, nobody go go and you know went and they didn't. So it was sad, but you know, I I, I expect about the same from him. Period.
0: Who who uh, from the BIS went to to Bobby's? And is anybody? keeping in tabs with the their daughter and, and cindy because cindy was a sweetheart she was so nice
1: oh she was wonderful yes and they still live in the same condo in largo and i just sent a a christmas card to her i i lost the cell phone number of course i had bobby's but then when he passed he must have got rid of his phone and uh, i'm hoping to go see her when i go down to florida but uh, yeah, he was just incredible, and you know, he uh, every place he went, he was just—I mean, he—he uh, he was incomparable. I mean, he was—he was so fundamental, and and he was such a, a genius at what he did, um, and he was so funny. God Almighty, he was—he—he—he—he's uh, just—I miss him dearly. He and, would hold um,
0: court after Munchniks when he'd come in, you know, every now and then. <laughs> Like he started for <laughs> Munchnik with Lanza and then later on, but he would cold, hold court after the wrestling at the Chase, which I think they were Saturday TV tapings or Sunday. And then at the, oh, yeah. the big hotel, Heaney he would hold court. And I look around me 74, 75. There's Bobo, Bruiser, there's Ray, because Ray had a match at the uh, keel with Pat O'Connor that I marked out for shooting. You know, I'd still mark out. Yeah. From, guys that that had that aura do,
1: do you remember mark how how the, at the Keel the ring was so hard
3: you know,
1: stiff ring and everybody hated working on it so bob it says i got it i got an idea at a, a different ring at the uh at the keel and i says how's that and he says right after the national anthem we slammed sam munchneck off the top rope <laughs>
0: Uh, did you hear that story of uh, oh, the, the sheikh uh, came in? I don't know why Eddie Farhat would come into work for it, was some weird thing. Maybe Madison got him to come in there or something, or we can blame Gratchner or something because he was a sheikh. <clears throat> but he comes in there and he's told explicitly by Munchnik no outside the ring stuff. So he they were hyping, you know, he's going to have a big match at Chase with somebody and uh, uh at, at keel but he's doing the chase tv and he starts going around the ring and and outside the ring and doing all the stuff that sam told him not to sam fired him on the spot and he came in it was really like a promoter's meeting anyway you know he was just there doing business with sam but he was yanked from the card and i mean you know what you're getting when you're bringing in uh, abby or Sheik.
1: oh cripe i was those guys in japan a couple times and they didn't make it to the ring, you know. They they, they didn't get in the ring. They they get entangled, and there was jutes all over the place, and they run around the ring, and and then all of a sudden, boom! And the, and the and the Japanese, of course, would go crazy, you know. And they'd get up and they'd run around, and you know, when you weren't supposed to go out into the crowd, uh, Abby and and uh, she could be out in the crowd, and oh my God! And 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 their match would maybe last four minutes, three minutes. And they never got the ring. Good payday. Oh, God. God. (laughs) Jesus, gosh almighty, yeah. I'm curious to know,
0: because
2: Dr. Mike obviously joked about potatoes earlier and whatnot. But you guys were also talking about psychology of the business with the current guys and such. But two questions there. Was there anybody that really gave you a potato that you go, Damn, uh, what do I owe you money? But the other part is the psychology side of things. When did the you feel with your athletic style that you had in the background really click with the mental psychology? Like, ah, I got this, and we we're able to combine the two.
1: Well, uh, the first part that the, the the person out of all my career that I had the worst time in the ring with, God rest his soul, is Jim Neidhart. Because he was like a um, disgruntled bear. He nine and 270, but he was so powerful. And he would, I remember one time he was deathly afraid that I'd drop kick. I said, Jim, when I throw the drop kick, just put your hand up by your face. So one time, it's towards the end of the match, and I'm gonna hit him with the drop kick, and I throw him in, and he pulled away so far that when I keep, I extended so far with my legs. And my feet I missed and and the heel of my boot hit him right below his eye and put a big crease in, and he jumped up and he was <laughs> furious. The first thing he did he put his fist about five inches into my belly and I thought he was going to extract my liver and I could, I couldn't breathe and thank God he ta- he went and tagged uh, Brett, and I take Brian and I said Jim, I said, for God's sakes, but getting back to the person that when when I really clicked with me, how I, you know, the psychology was working with Nick Bachwin, who I thought was incredible. You know, he was, uh, he was a wrestler's wrestler. I mean, he, he was so good. And I remember working with him on three different occasions, St. Paul, Winnipeg, and Denver having an hour draw with him and I remember Maurice Vachon in Winnipeg after I came in from that match and he said Jimmy he said that was one of the best matches I've ever seen and I felt that after the match I thought this guy has shown me more about the wrestling business in in terms of psychology and, and when to do this and when to do that how to do this he was incredible I mean, Nick Blackwinkle, and and you know, I mean, there was a lot of guys like that. I mean, the guys who I thought were the greatest workers in the world. There's about five of them, you know. And and one was Bob Orton Jr. and one was Jack, or, uh, Jake Roberts, Rick Steamboat. You know, Flair's got to be there someplace, you know, because of his style and his and his, you know, the way he handled himself in his interviews and. And then you had Nick, and you had the Funks, and you had the Briscoe. And, uh, you know, but then again, you look back on the WWE, the whole thing couldn't have happened without Hulk Hogan. I mean, he was, you know, he was incredible. I mean, he, he was in the AWA, and all of a sudden, boom, AWA exploded to the point where Vern Gagne was jealous. He says, God, I can't give him the belt. If I do, he'll become more popular than me. So what happens? He goes to Vince McMahon and Vince McMahon just blows the whole wrestling industry up, you know, and it was Hulk Hogan, the Golden Goose. It wasn't I supposed to be him at the far, beginning. You know? It was supposed
0: to be Snuka, Jimmy, Snuka at the beginning. And then the problem happened with him and they, Vince went with Hogan. And obviously that was a smarter deal all, all the way around monetarily.
2: But with that being said, I know, His name's been mentioned several times here in Bobby Heenan, and when it comes to working, Bobby said the best line I ever heard. Again, early 2000s, whatever it was. He says, Hogan could work for this reason, because people always gave Hogan shit. Oh, he wasn't a Bockwinkle, or he wasn't an Angle, or this one, or that. You know what I mean? The wrestler's wrestler, as you said, Jimmy. the, The reason he said Hogan could work for as long as he did was he still put asses in the seats.
1: He did. I remember when Hulk Hogan was making $50,000 a week in royalties, off his t-shirts, his mugs, his figurines, 50 grand a week. And I mean, I re- I still have the sports illustrated. I think it was 1985. And it says, sports top banana and has had hulk hogan making 10 million dollars a year you know that just says it right there when you get acknowledged on there it is there it is top and i got that and it says he made 10 million dollars a year he's the highest paid athlete in the world now these guys are making that a a week (laughs) or a month
0: did you get your royalties on the Coliseum home videos and stuff? Or remember Jesse Ventura sued when his likeness was on that and it would actually help the rest of the boys, but you know, he was criticized for it. He had that super agent, uh, attorney agent, Barry Bloom. Yeah. Uh, sure. And he won against Vince. So I don't know if you guys ended up getting all the royalties you deserved, or maybe that was part of your lawsuit just briefly. Cause I wasn't, I have either forgotten or what was the, brief basis, if you can tell me on the on uh, either suing Vince or WWF slash WWE, was it on royalties or the injuries? That There that, was a, quite a few guys sued, even come no, was, passed
1: away. Well, here's the deal. I still have the original contract that I signed with Vince. And in that contract, it had for outside revenues for royalties. We were supposed to get 25% of the gross. Well, when they came out with these figurines, you know, the action figures, I was seeing guys like Paul Orndorf, God rest his soul. There's another great worker. He uh, got $92,000 for a quarter, $92,000 for. The action figures. Khosrow Viziri, $92,000. So, uh, Brian and I weren't on the first segment of action figures, we on a second one. And I remember we got a check for 10 grand. And I thought, what? 10 grand? So, when Brian and I were done. I says, Brian, I said, and he didn't want to do this. He, he was vehemently against it. But I told him, I said, listen, Brian, I says, you and I are never going to work for Vince again. I said, me, I'm too. That they were supposed to pay us 25% of the gross, They wound up paying us 8% of the net. So there was literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in discrepancy on what they owed and what they didn't pay. So here was the deal. We could sue them again in Stanford, Connecticut, and it would have cost Brian and I $50,000 a piece up front. And we could have lost. It was 50, 50. So Brian and I decided we'll just keep what we got and just let it go. And then, in turn, we signed away all future Good. royalties. Which I remember when we got—I remember we got a check for twelve dollars and ninety-five cents for one period. You know and I mean? Yeah, there was no, there was no. Um, well, this is a funny thing because, and, and I know it's—I'm going to have to go up for dinner pretty soon. But um, the the worst thing is that. The worst thing about wrestling, there was no union to protect us. We had no say say about what you got paid. You know, I mean, you made good money, but I mean, nothing compared to what you should have got. And I remember, you know, the WrestleManias, you get ten grand. You know, they did forty million dollars. There's twenty five guys on the card, and you get ten grand. And I you know Hulk and Andre got a million apiece, and then some of the other guys got. You know, two hundred fifty thousand, but the rest of us got ten thousand dollars. And I, I talked to Gene Upshaw from the football deal, and I said, "Listen, I said we need we need a union so bad in pro wrestling." And he says, "Well, Jim, I'm going to tell you right now." He says, "All you're going to do is open up a, a a suitcase full of headaches," and he says, "They'll, you know, they'll fight you the whole way." And he said. The number one person that you need in your corner is Hulk Hogan. He said if I had Hulk Hogan in my corner fighting for us, we could probably get a union. But Hulk Hogan, it would have hurt him the most of a you know having a union because it would take away his you know huge earning ability and lessen it. So of course he wasn't going to get involved. And shortly thereafter, I mean, Vince fired me three times. And um, I remember the last time he fired me, I I pleaded with uh, Pat Patterson. I said, please let me know, you know, at least two weeks before you are going to fire me so I can, you know, at least do something. And uh, he never did. Pat never did. And I remember, Vince, you're done. You know, so it was good. I was just so glad to get away from the. WWE, it was just, uh, you know, it was bad. I mean, uh, you think of all the guys, that, the lives that he wrecked, I mean, that that gave up everything for the, the crazy business. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. I mean, there was guys that, I mean, you know, talk about drugs and alcohol and women, and whatever, gambling. And, and you know, it's it was ridiculous. I mean, this is an honest gr- uh, truth fact. Brian and I, for three and a half years, when we were the killer bees, wrestled 27 days a month for three and a half years straight. That's outrageous. We flew more than we should have flown. You know, you can't fly every day in a plane. think pilots fly every day? Yeah. So but that's, you know, that's why I feel like I, I had a blessed career. I had a great career. I achieved You know, uh, what I wanted to do, thank God, I didn't have any uh, permanent injuries in the ring. Um, I was gifted in in the guys that I worked with. I mean, they were incredible. I, I, you know, I, 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 there's only a couple guys that I, I, out of all the people I met in all the, you know, 27 years that, you know, I really didn't get along with. It it wasn't that we were, you know, enemies. It's just, that you know, that we had different personalities and we and we didn't think the same way in the ring but other than that I mean I, it was a great life and I was I thanked the Lord every day that that I am where I am today. I was blessed so quick stuff Hogan was the one
0: allegedly who stooged the union that Jesse Ventura was actually trying to put together I'm sure you probably would have supported that and that really oh, yes. bothered us at the time whatever year that was 89 I can't even remember. But Jesse Ventura had the guts because, you know, he knew that was probably going to be one of the times he got canned. And also on your dropkick, because I, I got to watch argentina Roca, uh, you know, later on in his career, not, not at his peak in the late 50s. And Dwayne Johnson's dad, Rocky, and yourself, the most amazing dropkicks. I mean, I've seen and shot everywhere, Mexico, Europe, Australia, Japan, Canada, the U.S., obviously all the territories. And so that's my Mount Rushmore dropkicks. kicks. So obviously you, you know, people brought you up but you were in that, that tier. I, I don't who did you like watching drop kicks or did you decide to start using it as a spectacular, I, I don't know if it was a, a transition or a, it wasn't a finisher but it was a, you know, great transition but you really got up there and made it look like artwork.
1: Well, I was blessed. Mike, with the fact that I I, you know, I was a high jumper, I jumped uh, so six foot go. eight in college and six four and a half in high school, and uh, I had uh, right under thirty eight inch you know vertical lift, and I it just was natural for me to throw the drop kick, and I I do have a couple pictures, and these drop kicks one was in the uh, Toronto Sun. It's in my book. It has they. It was called uh, uh, the main event, I think, and it was uh, Hulk Hogan against Paul or If they had seventy thousand people outside, and the next day in the Toronto Sun was front page was a picture of my drop kick hitting Dory Funk, and it was the greatest damn drop kick. And it took me eight weeks to get that print from that photographer. He wouldn't want to give it to me, and so I offered to pay him. But then it's funny because uh, I was in New Jersey, probably I don't know, three or four months ago, and gave me this picture, and it was a picture of me in Japan, drop kicking Dory, fuck again, and I I was I had to be about eight feet up in the air. Wow. and it was a great picture i if you guys send me your address i will i'll send you these two pictures because to me they're the uh you know the best that i i, I had a lot of drop kick pictures but uh these guys you know i mean dory funk love them <laughs> you know it it was it just wound up that the two of the best pictures were with him
0: a total well, legend. Too.
1: well i
2: want to be respectful of Jim's time. So, final question for you: What do you think your okay. legacy? What do you think your legacy is when people mention jumping Jim Brunzel?
1: Well, I think that I was an honest uh, uh, person. I worked hard every night. I never tried to, you know, feed anybody. I always uh, uh, would look after him in the rain. and uh, I was the career i had i I met some incredible guys some talented people and uh you know that were my blood brothers and we went through we were very uh unique because we went through a business that not everybody uh, can go through or endure uh and we were successful at it so um I think, you know, and people, you know, I see people and they recognize me, you know, and I, I'm 72 now. And, uh, you know, they say, um, you know, what do you think of today's wrestling? And I, I, I just say, why? Well, I just don't, I just say I don't watch it, period, you know, and um, the way it's going to be. And I'm sure majority of my age, are, you know from my era feel the same way those guys are still working as scout are and god god bless them if they can get a job there i mean you know everybody's got to work and you know pay you know make a living and and um you know i, I at one time i thought i might want to be an agent for the wwe but i i knew that i could probably ne- i'd never get along you know with vince or uh, the guys that were you know that i'd have to report to but uh, also i want to Mentioned Jack Lanza, God rest his soul, passed away last week, whatever it was. And, and I had a lot of good matches with him. And I'll never forget when I left the AWA, he called me and he said, Jimmy, I just want to tell you something. I said, what's that, Jack? He said, this is the worst thing you could do in your career is leaving the AWA. And I says, Jack, I have to go. So, and it was funny about six to eight weeks later, I see Jack Lanza sitting down in, in an agent chair at, at one of the shows, you know, <laughs> before TV. And I said, oh, Jack, I says, you remember when you said this was the worst thing that I ever did was leave Vern? And I said, you've done the same thing, you know. <laughs> and it was funny. Uh, but I want to thank both. And, and Mike, I called you Mark a couple times. And the reason why I see it's it looked like Mark Now
0: I see it's Marlene Lano underneath. Oh, that's
1: yeah, my boy. Okay. I want to say this about
0: Jim, consummate professional. We didn't even get into him, his legacy, the world's greatest Bruce Springsteen mark in the 70s, concert mark. Yeah. And maybe next time we can talk about uh because you watched the rise of Bob Backlund. We haven't even talked about Backlund and you were there for a lot of that. And uh all the magic in the 70s, Jimmy Brunzel was was there for quite a bit of it. And and obviously later on, but the 70s was when I think of Jim Brunzel, I think, man, what an athlete. What a credit to the business, ethical, honest guy, you know, in, in a business often with thieves.
2: <laughs> Jim, thank you so much.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Jonathan. Good and have a Merry Christmas and a prosperous and healthy New Year. Appreciate it.
2: Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs, well when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media, and order yours today. Hi, this is Buck Joe and
0: You're listening to Crazy Train Radio.